This is the uh, 14th of March. And uh, uh, Sarai did a really, really great job of introducing the text for today, which is uh, the church at Antioch, and particularly the, the role that Barnabas played in encouraging them there. And, uh, you know, so often we think of the early church as a model church. Um, and certainly there was a, a lot to get excited about, a lot of evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in people's lives, the fruit of the gospel, very evident as we read through those first several chapters of Acts. And I'm, I'm not encouraging anyone not to think of that church as, some, uh, as a church we should emulate, but we shouldn't think that that church was perfect. The church of Jerusalem wasn't, uh, wasn't perfect. Not even close. We looked at, a few weeks back, we looked at Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. There's some problems there, right? And then uh, Acts chapter 6, the neglecting of the uh, Hellenistic, uh, Hellenist widows. Uh, and then there also is this reluctance on the part of uh, many to, go, to take the gospel beyond Judaism. And that is also a part of the problem that we see with uh, that early Jerusalem church. And it was significant enough, and we shouldn't miss this, it was significant enough a problem that God saw fit to use persecution to scatter the church like seed to the nations in order to make his uh, will happen. So our text today uh, begins with Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So that's where we're going to go. Acts 11, 19 says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this shows the continuity of the storyline in the book of Acts. The writer Luke is recounting numerous stories and events and people uh, as he goes along, but we, we shouldn't lose sight of the, the plot, the center of the storyline. Uh, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's go there and take a quick look. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of, uh, of the earth. You might recall at the, um, uh, the recounting of the death of Stephen um, in Acts chapter 7, how as you come into Acts chapter 8, verse uh, 1, it says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So that's that, that scattering by, uh, by persecution. And uh, a few years back, we, we went through the book of Luke on Sunday mornings, we took uh, I think it was a year. It took us a year to go through the entire book of Luke, and uh, we 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 did that. And you you may, if you were with us then, recall when we were in Luke chapter ten. There's this uh, statement there that says that uh, well, verses one and two. It says after this, uh, the Lord appointed seventy two others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, that he would send workers into his harvest field. And you probably will remember that Acts, the book of Acts, is Luke part two, that Luke wrote 
the book of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that, that the book of Acts is a continuation of the story of the book of Luke. And so that passage that we just, we just looked at, we just read, there's a reference there where it says that he sent them out. He's talking about the 70. It says after this, which was after he set his face for Jerusalem, where he was going to, to die for our sins. And it says that after that, he sent out um, 72 others. And that word sent there is the Greek word apostello. And of course, that's where we get the word apostle. And it means to be sent out as an ambassador uh, to represent someone, uh, someone who's commissioned and given authority to take a message. Uh, but when he says in that same passage, pray to the Lord of the harvest that, uh, to send out laborers into the harvest field, that's a different Greek word. And that's the Greek word ekbalo. And it's, uh, it's a totally different word and it has a totally different connotation. It means to be, to be thrust or driven out or cast out. In fact, that's the word that is used when we're told that Jesus casted demons out of people. So you can see it's a, it's a very different connotation because uh, in the first place you have this idea of commissioning and, and representation. But with this second word, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out, that he would thrust out, that he would cast out. It has the idea almost of seed being cast out. It has, has a sense of, of force behind it. Um, and that's what we see when, when persecution came to the, to the early church. And, uh, and there was a resistance to taking the gospel across those geographical lines and those nationalistic lines and whatnot. And God used persecution to, to scatter the seed of the, of the gospel to the nations. You know, when we think of uh, opposition, we tend to think of things like persecution. But if you study the book of Acts, that's not where the opposition came the opposition uh, in the book of Acts uh, came more in the hearts of those who were actually supposed to be taking the gospel out. And so the book of Acts is the account of Jesus Christ scattering the seed of the word by the blood of the martyrs into the world. Now, that passage again in Luke chapter 10 that we just looked at a moment ago where Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers uh, into the harvest fields, they're white unto harvest. Uh, it's the same context of John chapter four, where Jesus is at the well in, in Sychar and Samaria, and the woman of the well, the woman comes to the well, and and Jesus at one point, uh, when the disciples return and they see the people coming out of the city of Sychar to to uh, you know on uh, mass, and Jesus says to his disciples there, lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white unto harvest. Lift up your eyes and see the people. People who don't know the Lord. People who may be very different than you. But people that God loves and seeks and wants, to, wants them to hear the gospel. So in the book of Acts, we see the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea. And then in Acts chapter 8, Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. And then uh, last week, Josh 
led us through Acts chapter 10, which is the story of Peter and Cornelius, an apostle and a Gentile Roman soldier stationed at Caesarea Maritima. Didn't you love that? The video clips from uh, those ruins there in Caesarea? Amazing. Um, I'd been to Caesarea and I've seen those ruins, but uh, it was really neat to see it from the air like that. The drone footage is really, really spectacular. So, so we're seeing the gospel go out, but not without resistance. And the resistance is not so much the persecution. The resistance is in the hearts of the very ones who were commissioned to make sure that the gospel went out to the nations. Josh made reference to the fact of how much Peter, in that account in Acts 10, resembles Jonah in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Jonah in the book of Jonah. Uh, Peter, the message that Peter got on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house, uh, that vision he saw three times. And the significance of the three times uh, is probably, uh, includes just the fact that, it, that, that God was repeating himself three times. It probably has more significance than that, but that in itself is significant. And the message that came with it was, God, what God has made clean, do not call common. God speaking to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then, of course, he, he uh, sends Peter to Cornelius' house, and, and there's Cornelius gathered with all his family and all his friends, and, and uh, Peter comes in and says, okay, I'm here, what do you want? Well, that's, a, that's a paraphrase, but that's basically what Peter said. And I don't know if it's ever struck you, but, I mean, here's Peter. <laughs> He's supposed to be on mission to the ends of the earth, and here's Cornelius and all his neighbors and friends sitting there just like, okay, you know, we've sent for you, and you've come, and here we are, and, and, and Peter is uh, kind of, uh, I, you know, I, the Holy Spirit must have been pretty incredulous at that point, I, I, I think, you know, but we have to understand how deeply ingrained these mindsets and these prejudices were in the, uh, these early Jewish believers that somehow caused them to think that the gospel was designed for people like us. The gospel is for the world. Right? All of this is, is somewhat... Um, introductory to our text, but it's why that passage in Acts 11.19 uh, is, 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 is there in, in correlation with the theme of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, says the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So, they, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem after he had met with Cornelius, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. What's going on? So Peter gave through the whole account, as Josh led us through last week there. Peter goes through the whole accounting and tells them the whole story. And he says, you know, they, they received the Holy Spirit just like we did at the beginning, which uh, was probably somewhere around 10 years prior to that. And then it says in verse 18, the verse that just precedes our text for the day, it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God granted repentance that leads to life. And you read that and you think, okay, finally, they get it. 
They finally get it, right? The gospel isn't just for us. The gospel is for the world. The gospel is for the Gentiles uh, and for the nations as well. They finally, they finally got it. The problem is these things were so deeply in, ingrained in them. The animosity, the sense of strangeness. Uh, you know, the Samaritans, they were a hard pill to swallow, right? Because the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was, was really, really, uh, it wasn't good. Uh, but, but the Gentiles? The Gentiles were the enemies of the Jews. We just spent the last uh, two years plus coming through the Old Testament accounts. And I don't know if you remember back, you know, when you, we were in the, uh, looking at the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha and, and, the, and the kings of the north uh, and how it was the, uh, the Syrians were uh, their enemies. And it's easy for you and I just to gloss over that history. But what if it was your history? What if it was your ancestors that were treated the way uh, some of those people were treated? They called the Gentiles dogs. But they had a really big problem, and this was their problem. Gentiles were getting saved. People were going out in spite of the hesitancy of many. There were some who were taking the message to non-Jews. And what was happening was when these non-Jewish people, these Gentile people, heard the message of the good news of Jesus, many of them were responding. And they were responding in repentance and faith, and their lives were being transformed. And it was, it was a real, uh, it was a real uh, challenge for them. Um, Verse uh, 20, Acts chapter 11. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Hellenists being uh, being, um, uh, Greek. And the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21, and a great number uh, who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears in the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, there were a number of places called Antioch in the ancient world. It was a common place name. Uh, but this Antioch that, that uh, we're, uh, refer- that's referenced here is Antioch in Syria. Uh, I've got a map I'm going to put on the screen, and we'll, uh, we'll have a look at this. But uh, uh, let's see here. I'm going to turn this way. Okay, so we're talking right, uh, right here, Syrian Antioch. See that? There's uh, the Dead Sea. Uh, there's Joppa where we, uh, and Caesarea where we were last week in Acts chapter uh, 10. Uh, there's Syrian Antioch right up there. Okay? You can see on the map, there's Rome way over there. I, I like this map because it gives you the perspective. All those lines, by the way, are all travels of the Apostle Paul. As we read on in the book of Acts, that's where all this is going, okay? And uh, what does it say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
So the historian Josephus, he called Antioch in Syria the third city of the empire after only Rome and Alexandria. It was a major, major center. Uh, There was a large Jewish colony in Antioch, but there was also a large number of Greeks, Persians, Chinese, Indians. It was a very cosmopolitan place. And the church at Antioch was a very cosmopolitan church because anyone who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and responds in repentance and faith becomes a child of God. Anyone, anywhere, at any time. Because the gospel is for the world. It's exciting. What happened in Antioch was exciting. It was, it was a happening place. People were coming to Christ, and they were coming to Christ in great numbers, both Jews and Gentiles from all over the world. Can you imagine the variety? Can you imagine the challenges? Like, we're talking people that were very, very different, and everybody had a history, and history, the history made it hard. It made it really hard. But you know what they say about variety, right? Variety is the spice of life. And God is honored and glorified by the differences that we see when we look at other people around us. You know, it's, uh, it's not easy sometimes. We talked about uh, Jonah not being wanting to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were bitter enemies who, who basically conquered that whole area of northern Israel and drugged people off. They say they, they would come in with, with hooks and hook them in the lips of the people and drag, literally drag the residents off to foreign lands and resettle them. Like, we're not talking insignificant things here. This is, these are major, major uh, 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 obstacles to... Uh, love and acceptance and kindness and forgiveness and fellowship. So when the report came to Jerusalem and the apostles heard what was happening in Antioch, they... uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not unlike, uh, you may recall Acts chapter 8, when they heard what was going on in Samaria, they sent Peter and John. You guys need to go down there and see what's going on down there. You know, those Samaritans, meh, you know, I, this is a similar kind of thing. So they sent, uh, they sent Barnabas. Uh, uh, you know, hey, Barnabas. Why don't you go down or up? I don't know. I guess it's up. Why don't you go up to, 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 to Antioch? See what's going on there. Because we're not sure if these people accepting the good news is good news. And uh, so they chose Barnabas. Look, look at Acts chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And uh, he exhorted them all to, re- to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great many people were added uh, to, to the Lord. 
You know, we're doing this series called Sent. Last week, we t- Josh spoke about how the gospel how, uh, sends us uh, to all, that we're sent to all. And this week's message is uh, t- entitled Sent to Encourage, because the fact that the gospel is uh, for all and that we are sent to all can become just a hollow slogan. It, you know, because we're a whole lot better with these things in theory than we are in practice. And it's one thing to say, you know, it's easy for me to say I'm not prejudiced. It's like declaring our values, but the reality is, is that how we actually live our lives will evidence what our values really are, not, not so much what we say. And it's easy to give lip service and say, oh yeah, I'm just going to love everybody. I love the whole world. But when you get in the nitty gritty of life and, and it gets hard, we really need to be encouraged. And Barnabas, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was an encourager. I remember uh, a few years back, I heard somebody, somebody told me they had, a, they had a conversation with somebody and, and they uh, mentioned uh, our church. And this was somebody in, you know, in, who was part of our church family and, and they mentioned the church and, and the other person said, oh yeah, I know about that church. They'll, they'll accept anybody. And they did not mean it as a compliment. But we take it as one. You know how it is sometimes when people say something sarcastic and they don't really mean it as a compliment, but it's like, yeah, thank you very much. Barnabas is one of those wonderful characters in the New Testament, isn't he? You, You may recall that Barnabas is not actually his real name. What's his real name? Do you remember? His real name was Joseph. But they called him Barnabas because Barnabas means something. Do you remember what that is? Son of encouragement or, or an encourager. He was, he was nicknamed uh, the encourager. Sounds like a pretty good nickname to me. Um, and every time that Barnabas appears on the pages of scriptures, he's encouraging somebody. He's giving somebody the benefit of, of the doubt because Barnabas, and here's the thing about Barnabas, if you study Barnabas as a character, here's the thing that stands out. Barnabas could see Jesus in people's lives. He could see um, Jesus working in people's lives. God gave him that incredible ability. <laughs> um, and Another thing, too, is that uh, you may have noticed when it says that in uh, verse 19 and 20 that uh, while some preached the gospel only to Jews, um, uh, some traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, uh, and, so, and there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch, spoke the, to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Where was Barnabas from? You probably wouldn't remember that because that, again, is an earlier reference, but he was from Cyprus. So there's a lot of reasons why Barnabas made a, a really, really good choice to go to Antioch to see what was going on down there. There's a lot of reasons, but have you ever wondered uh, what, if they had sent somebody else, what they would have seen? Because Barnabas had the ability to see Christ at work in people's lives, but sometimes we lack that ability. And I wonder sometimes what someone else might have seen if they had gone to Antioch. 
Maybe they would have saw something different. Maybe they would have come back and said, yeah, you don't want to go there. It's crazy. You know, the, the Gentiles, they just let them, they just let them be part of everything just like, you know, just like us. There's, people, there's people there you just, you wouldn't want to hang out with. You wouldn't want to be around them. It says in verse 25, Barnabas went to, uh, to, to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is what Barnabas did next. After he, after he looked, let, let me just, just go back there to verse, uh, I don't know, where was it? The verses that just preceded that. Um, I get lost in my notes here. Verse 23 and 24. When he came, he saw the grace of God. You see? That's what he saw. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I'm sure Barnabas saw all kinds of other stuff going on because you've got to know there's other stuff going on, right? But that's what he saw and that stood out to him. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then, uh, and then the next thing he does, it says in verse 25, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called uh, Christians. Now, I'm gonna get Dave to bring that map up again. I uh, just want you to, I wanna point out to you, uh, Tarsus, where's Antioch? Right there, Syrian Antioch, remember? There's Tarsus right there, okay? All right, that's where Saul was from. That was his hometown. That's where he grew up. He was educated in Jerusalem as a, probably a teen, but he was from Tarsus. And uh, um, we're told if you pull together the events of, of, of Saul's life, Saul who became known as the Apostle Paul. If you pull the events of his life together into a timeline, what we learn is that shortly after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he ended up going to Arabia, and he spent three years in Arabia. And it's often speculated that the time that Paul spent in Arabia was time that he spent in relative seclusion there, perhaps living like a desert hermit. Uh, we don't really know much about his time there, the only reference, we, the only way we even know he, he was there at all was, is a reference he made to his time there in Galatians chapter uh, 1. But uh, somewhere, Paul received great revelations. Remember that from a couple of weeks back, 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Somewhere, Paul received uh, great revelations from God that were way, way beyond anything that, that the average person would experience. And he tells the, the Galatians Christians in Galatians chapter 1 that he, he received all his instructions in the gospel directly from the Lord and not from the other apostles. And that was, it's speculated that that's what that three years in Arabia was all about. Um, but why would the Lord choose to have Paul, Saul or Paul, uh, off in the desert somewhere for three years and speak directly to, to him and instruct him as an apostle in the gospel uh, rather than him going back to Jerusalem and getting all his information from the apostles. Now, of course, the other apostles. We don't know the answer to that question, but I would suggest to you that a partial reason could be the extreme bias that all of the other apostles had against the Gentiles. Because remember, when God called Saul, 
of Tarsus. He called him. It says right in the passage in Acts chapter 9 that God told him, I am going to send you to the Gentiles. Right? And so um, Paul was a Jew, but he was from Tarsus. Tarsus was a prominent Roman city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Cilicia. And Paul was a Roman citizen. Uh, he referred to his own writings to Tarsus as no ordinary city. It was a cosmopolitan center of trade and commerce. It was a port city, people coming and going from all over the world. There were palaces and roads and bridges and fountains and theaters and gymnasiums. It was an intellectual center of Greek language and culture. The schools in Tarsus were said to rival those of Athens and Alexandria. Cleopatra and Mark Antony met in Tarsus. It was no ordinary city. And while the other apostles would have lived their, um, their all entire lives pretty much uh, exposed mostly only to their own people, Paul's situation was very, very different. He knew Gentiles. He knew them well. He knew their culture. I think he knew their hearts too. Um, after he was in Arabia, he goes to Jerusalem. He tries to connect himself with the church there. That doesn't go so well because of his reputation as a persecutor. And who was it that that stepped up and stood up for Paul and introduced him to the church there in Jerusalem. Who was that? You don't recall? It was a fellow named Barnabas. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. And then, and then the, the, the passage in Acts goes on to tell us that, that he ends, Paul ends up getting uh, uh, sent off because... Um, he was very effective as an evangelist for Jesus. And of course, the Jewish authorities, uh, the, the, the heat was ratcheted up and they, they, uh, Paul had to escape. It says in chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 30, that when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. And again, if you go through the biblical material, Paul then spent the better part of a decade in his hometown before this passage where we're, we're reading today, where Barnabas goes from Antioch, goes looking for, for Paul or Saul. So that, I think that helps us to see why Barnabas would do that, doesn't it? He said, Paul, you gotta come see what's going on in Antioch, brother. There's, there's exciting things happening there and I think you're just the guy to come down and help me here. So, that's what happens. And uh, Paul ends up joining uh, Barnabas back in Antioch. And what's it say there? It says they spent a year. Back in my notes here. Uh, they, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then we read in uh, verses 27 through 30. We read, uh, now in those days, 
prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now the phrase there, everyone according to his ability, is reminiscent of uh, the uh, incredible fellowship and generosity that we read about in the early chapters of Acts, right? That the church experienced at Jerusalem. And uh, so they, <clears throat> they take up this major collection and they send it off uh, with Barnabas and Saul to the brothers uh, in Jerusalem. You know, we tend to think of that early church in Jerusalem as a model church um, because of the phenomenal growth that they experienced, because of the uh, quality of life and fellowship that they had, uh, but something was missing in that church in Jerusalem. They, and and what, what was missing was people. Now, that might seem strange to you for me to say that because they had lots of people, obviously. But the people that were missing were the people that weren't Jews. Because the church in Jerusalem had lots of people. They had uh, Hebrew Jews or Hebraic Jews. They had Hellenistic Jews. But they were all basically Jewish. This church at Antioch broke that mold. It really broke it. And you could say the same thing for us today. Um, With all of our shortcomings... Uh, the thing that stands out is really the missing people. Uh, I love this church at Antioch um, because it represents something. It represents something that we have not yet really seen in the book of Acts. It represents something that we don't see often enough today. It represents something that doesn't happen naturally and it doesn't happen easily. The church at Antioch is positioned in Scripture as a model. And one of the reasons that I say that is because this church, this church at Antioch, becomes the sending church in the book of Acts. It becomes the sending church of the New Testament church age. Um, You might have noticed the lines on the map. But we're going to get to that as we move on down through. But what gave it that capacity? Why would it become the sending church? I believe it was because it was an encouraging church. I believe it was because the church at Antioch was a church where it really didn't matter what your family background was, what your history was, what your manners and customs were. Didn't matter the color of your skin or the way you spoke or anything like that. It was an amazing church. How do you have a church like that? I think it starts when we start seeing people 
the way God sees people. Which means we have to care. We have to care about people. Not just people like us. Which means we have to love people. And we have to want them, with all their differences, to come to know Christ and to experience the blessings that are found only in him. That's the first thing, we have to care. And then we have to bear, because we're going to have to bear with one another to have a church like that. And I'm not going to take the time to to go into that side of of the the question really this morning, because we don't have that time, but... I've been enjoying a Saturday morning men's group recently where we've talked a little bit about what it means to bear with. Uh, <clears throat> bear with one another, which is a biblical command. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. We read it here a few weeks ago. But bearing with one another, what's, what's that take? What's involved in that? You know, the term brothers is used here, and I, I, I want to kind of, I guess, maybe try to finish up with this because... The use of the term brothers in the book of Acts is very interesting and in the life of the early church. It's fascinating, really. Um, in the early chapters, in the first chapter of Acts, where the disciples are gathered in the upper room waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit and they decide to choose uh, someone to replace Judas, they use the term brothers there when they're talking to each other. Um, from there, you know, when Peter stood up and preached his sermon at Pentecost, he used the term brothers over and over again. And of course, he was preaching to fellow Jews, but they were Jews who didn't know Christ. So we see the term brothers used there as well. Stephen used it also when he spoke in uh, Acts chapter 7. Um, and that, those instances, as I say, are fellow Jews who did not know Christ. And so that is significant. But that was a normal practice for Jews. Jews did that all the time. Paul does that in Acts chapter 13 on his missionary journeys when he spoke in the synagogues. He referred to them as, as brothers and addressed them that way. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, Acts chapter 9, verse 30, Acts chapter 10, verse 23, it's always Christians talking, Jewish Christians talking to Jewish Christians. And then last week in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 and verse 12, it's Jewish believers talking to Jewish believers. But as near as I can find in the book of Acts, this passage we're reading today is the first time that the word brothers is used across that line between Jews and Gentiles. And I think that's significant. And take note of the fact that it's the Gentiles who use it. And they didn't just use the term. They put their money where their mouth was. And in an incredible act of benevolence and caring, they sent funds to their brothers at Jerusalem who were hurting. Up to this point in that book of Acts, the church has been a Jewish sect. It has existed within, under the umbrella of Judaism. But the church and the gospel can't be contained like that. The Gentiles took the lead. That's the first time brothers is used that way. It won't be the last. 
in the book of Acts. We're going to see a really significant statement when we come to the council, the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, but we don't have time to get into that. But I want to, this is what I want to end with. There's another first here too. This is the first time the word brothers is used across that, that, that line between Gentiles and Jews as these Gentile believers embraced, uh, um, recognized and embraced their Jewish brothers. But there's another first here too. You, you noticed it, right? Because this was the first time it says that Christians were called Christians. Now it's believed that this was a term given, to, given by un, unbelievers, given to believers as a derogatory kind of nickname. But they embraced it. You know what it's like when someone tries to insult you, or perhaps be sarcastic, and they don't realize they're paying you a compliment, and you just like, thank you very much. This is one of those times. And I, it might be reading too much into the text to consider this, but if we're really thinking that this church in Antioch is a model church for us as Christians, then maybe it's not too much to think that the point here is that real Christians... represent Christ well, but they come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Maybe it's not too much to say that real Christians have a heart for anyone and everyone that God has a heart for. What's lacking so often in our lives and in our churches is the capacity to see people who are different than us the way God sees them, as equal in value and worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the language of uh, the brotherhood, the, the familial, familial language dominates the New Testament. It's absolutely everywhere. It begins with Jesus when he keeps telling the disciples over and over and over again, your father in heaven, your father in heaven. You should be treating each other this way because that's how your father in heaven treats you. You should even love your enemies because that's how your father in heaven is. That's what he's like. And it goes all the way through the epistles, through the history of the book of Acts and the end of the epistles. It's the dominant language because the church of Jesus created by the gospel of Jesus, the death and resurrection, the shedding of his own blood to purchase us from sin and death and hell. The church of Jesus Christ is first and foremost a family. Now, how encouraging is that? Really? I pray that God will give us eyes to see People, not just people like us, but all people, the way God sees people, loved by him and sought by him. A brotherhood that crossed those geographical and national boundaries, that's, that's the vision Jesus has for his church. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Don't forget, Luke was 
a Gentile. I want to uh, ask you to pray with me as we close this morning. Eli is done. He's ready. He's ready for lunch. <laughs> so good to see, see you guys this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for those who are gathered here in this place and for those who are joining us online. And, and uh, together, Lord, we just pray at this time. We just pause and pray and ask that you would give us your eyes. And give us your heart. Lord, we, we want to be people who love people like that. We know, Lord, that it's going to take a work of your spirit in our, in our hearts. And we know it doesn't come easy. We know that our prejudices and our, and our opinion, opinions uh, often drive us away instead of instead of bringing us together. But we pray that the power of the gospel to reconcile, not just to reconcile us with you, our God, but to reconcile us with one another as, other, as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, we pray that that would win the day and that we would be the people and the church that you want for us to be the kind of, of fellowship and brotherhood and evangelistic effectiveness that we see in this great church that you've recorded for us here in these passages in your word. We pray that you would make it so by your spirit at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.